This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is Aviv Reddick-Gore. He's a former IDF soldier and a senior political analyst for the Times of Israel and has done extensive reporting on Israeli politics and the Hamas, Palestinian, Hezbollah, Iranian issues affecting the region. It is a timely conversation and at times difficult. It's on Hamas, Israel, the state of the region, and the human toll of violent conflict. We discussed the early reports of decapitated babies from sites of massacres through the chaos, fog, confusion, and trauma of the battlefield. His response to those reports is thoughtful, heartfelt, and important for all, including myself, to hear. And now, without further ado, Haviv Redikor. I want to sincerely thank you for coming on in the midst of all you have going on over there, personally, professionally. It's just, uh, my heart goes out to you and uh, to everyone in Israel right now. Thank you. Thank you. It's been uh, it's been an, a nation altering week. It is. It's been something very, very big and strange, and we don't yet understand it ourselves. Yeah, and I wanted to start off um, just if you could give your the listeners or wa- people that are watching a little snapshot on your background if they're not familiar with you, um, and how. Uh, and we'll start with we'll start with that. Yeah, um, my name is Chaviv Gul. I'm uh, born and raised in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, folks might have heard of it. Um, my, uh, I spent some of my childhood in the United States. I graduated high school in Wisconsin. That's the English you're hearing. Um, and um, I uh, studied uh, at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. I worked, I, was, I served in the army, obviously, like just most Israelis. And, um, and I've been in journalism for the last uh, 17 years or so uh, in Israel. How, uh, how long were you in the Israeli military? I was the standard draft period, three years, and I was in the infantry, um, uh, the 50th Battalion. I think it's called Cavalry in America. Somebody once tried to explain it to me, but you guys have very different words. Um, And uh, yeah, and I served in, you know, the borders, the West Bank, all the different places. And did you go right into journalism after that, or did you have a, a stop somewhere else? No, my first, my student job, you know, when I got out of the army, I went to college and college, I paid my way through college by working as a bodyguard for government ministers, which oh, wow. was uh, extremely boring. Really? Uh, it's as boring, you, you know, you look at those guys and they look tough, but they're bored. Yeah. They've been looking tough, you know, every day for eight to 12 hours, uh, you know, forever. So, uh, yeah. But um, then I got into journalism, um, probably, I think, three years after the army, something like that. And uh, never looked back. It's been a fun ride. And now it's Times of Israel. How long have you been there? Um, almost since the start. Um, I used to work at the Jerusalem Post, uh, English language newspaper here, a pretty famous one, very old one. Uh, and the editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post left and founded uh, the Times of Israel. And I went with him. So even though I've worked at three different uh places i've actually worked for the same guy for 15 of the seven the last 17 years um so that's 2012 i i started at the times of israel covering the romney campaign oh wow so 2012 
Okay. And uh, did you have a specific focus the entire for the last uh, decade plus? I write about Israeli politics. And because Israeli politics are constantly um, entangled with the geopolitics in the region and U.S.-Israel relations and, and things like that, I also write about Palestinians. I write about um, the broader sort of geopolitics of the region and things like that. Yeah, but my if I have expertise in something, it's Israeli politics. Okay, and I want to touch on on that the executive, judicial, and that divide, um, that recent divide in, in a minute. But before we get there, um, I've had so many people texting me and uh, direct messaging me and asking me for a kind of a breakdown of what's going on in Israel, asking me what books they can they can read to get caught up on what's going on. Because obviously, over here you hear Hamas, you hear Hezbollah, you hear Gaza, you hear West Bank, um, and you hear all these these different things. And to someone over here who's focused uh, either uh, on you know. States or maybe United States and Iraq and Afghanistan or a couple other places around the world where where we get engaged, um, it can get a bit confusing. So I was wondering if you could walk through how we got to here now, maybe from not super in depth from 1948 to now, because that might take us a few <laughs> hours. But yeah. uh, maybe a little background, uh, uh, a little bit by what 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 happened in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s that led us up to here, the creation of Hamas, and then the Hamas PLO, uh, and, and that, uh, the, that essential divide. Sure. Um, well, I can actually go back 140 years, but we'll, we'll just do it on one sort of very thin topic. So we'll move very fast. Um, the story, uh, as I understand it, um, and of course, this is an Israeli's understanding of, of my own people's story, and but also of their story, of the Palestinian side story. But um, what I understand our story to be essentially um, is that from the very beginning, um, you know, the Jews uh, have a, have a have an experience, a historical experience, a historical trajectory over the last 140 years. And the Palestinians um, and the Arabs living in this land and in the surrounding countries have a historical experience and they don't match. They don't understand in the same way what happened to them. So in 1881, um, a an anarchist group um, that had nothing to do with Jews assassinated the Tsar of Russia. And his son takes over and launches um, massive pogroms. Some of the pogroms, by the way, are not launched by the regime. They're bottom up and the regime is actually scared by them because it's losing, you know, it's entire cities get turned over to these pogromists uh, and Jews are massacred in the streets. And over the next really 60 years from 1881, right up until World War II, um, there are these escalating waves of violence against Jews. Uh, Kishinev is a famous one in 1903, where, where dozens are killed, but there's more and more and more. In the Russian Civil War from 1918 to 1921, probably 150,000 Jews are killed, villagers, civilians, by all the different armies in that war. All you know, doesn't matter if you were a communist or a white Russian or any of the different groups, Ukrainian nationalists, you come across a Jewish village, you burn it to the ground. And over the course of that period, 1880 to about 1921, um, millions of Jews flee Europe. And almost all of them flee to the West, to the United States. There's almost no reason to flee to Ottoman or then British Palestine. Um, and they so they flee westward, a little bit to Britain, Canada, a little bit to Brazil, Argentina, almost two and a half million to the United States. Most of American Jews today are those Jews. The vast majority of American Jews are, the, are that flight in those 40 years. In 1921, the U.S. Congress passes a law of uh, the, the Emergency Quota Act, it's called, and the Emergency Quota Act essentially shuts the doors of America to the Jews. So in 1921, I think 140,000 Jews land in New York. 
And by 1924, when there's an even stricter quota act passed, it's down to 10,000. And by 1934, uh, when the Nazis are already in power in Germany, it's down to 2,700. And so the, the gates closed from America after, and it has many reasons. Some of it is just prejudice. Uh, some of it is uh, the depression. Uh, there, there are many different sort of pressures. Uh, after America, Canada does the same. Britain uh, shuts its doors. France, Argentina, Brazil, Australia, you name it, they shut their doors to the Jews. And so in Europe, in the 1930s, Poland starts taking citizenship away from Jews. In the 1920s, Romania kicks Jews out of universities. Everything that we know of, of the Nazis, of how the Nazis treated Jews, the Nuremberg Laws and things like that, well, you know, it six, uh, what was it, 50 years, 1882, the Russian Tsar passes the May Laws, which kicks Jews out of universities and professions in parts of Russia. Um, Jews are living in a place that is becoming uninhabitable. And along comes a, a continent. I mean, Europe makes itself literally uninhabitable for Jews. And all Europe, all countries, every single government, uh, in different ways at different times, but all of them. And that is the world into which the Zionist movement is born. And along come people like Theodore Herzl, an, a Viennese Jew. Uh, in, in 1897, uh, he gathers together the, what's called the First Zionist Congress. He publishes a book called The Jewish State. And he makes a very spe specific argument. We're going into this modern times, right? We're having this, you know, there's new liberalism. All, all these different countries have parliaments. Suddenly we're, we're, we're developing science that we never developed before. Somebody figured out that the electron is negatively charged. There's all this magical stuff happening. Modernity is happening. But I'm telling you, Jews, that inside this modernity and inside this parliamentarism and liberalism, there are murderous impulses. He says there is a catastrophe coming. He even says... I don't know how it will happen. I don't know if they'll come for us from below, by which he means Marxists, or if they'll come for us from above, by which he means the European elites. I don't know if they'll rob us, if they'll kill us, if they'll expel us. I suspect it'll be all these things at once. Theodor Herzl tells the Jews of Europe, if you don't get out, you will face a catastrophe. And that's the birth of the Zionist movement, finding a way to get the Jews out. And as the gates close, the Jews begin in their hundreds of thousands. First, it's a trickle after 1881. By 1921, when the doors of the West close, it becomes a flood. The Jews flee to the land of Israel. And that's the Jewish story. And it's a powerful story. I want to, I'm sorry to talk so long, but just, you know, um, on the other side of that story, um, even everybody knows about the Holocaust, so I don't have to talk about it. But Americans don't know about after the Holocaust, because the quotas weren't lifted after the Holocaust. And so even though the American story is that the troops liberated Bergen-Belsen, Bergen-Belsen still had Jews living behind barbed wire, kept in by force, patrolled by British and American troops until 1947. They still couldn't go and no government on earth would take them. When did the DP camps of Europe and their quarter million Jews empty? In 1948. And in that 48 war, at the establishment of the State of Israel, one quarter of the soldiers of the IDF, at the moment the IDF was established, we're Holocaust refugees. We're DPs, displaced persons. That's our story. And I told you our story so that we could flip to the Palestinian story. The Palestinians from day one, and I mean 1881, the Arab elites of Jerusalem, of Beirut, the idea of exactly what Palestine is, what part of the land counts as Palestine is something that changes and morphs a little bit. Beirut counts as part of it at the time. But they see this beginning of this Jewish influx, and they interpret it in a very different way. They say, it's not that these Jews are refugees fleeing the Tsar. They all spoke Russian, these Jews, because they're running away from Russian lands. 
These Jews, in fact, are agents of the Tsar. The Russian Empire is the great enemy of the Ottoman Empire. The Arabs in the Middle East believe they're Ottomans at the time, and so these enemies are coming. Um, and then over the 1920s and 30s, um, as these big colonialist projects really take root in Algeria and in Kenya and places like that, um, they begin to look at us and say, oh, these are European colonialists, right? Um, in 1935, 65,000 Jews land here for, who, who speak German. You'll never guess why, right? Um, Palestinians interpret that. And there's writings of the Palestinians interpreting these German-speaking Jews who begin to come in the 20s and more in the 30s as a German invasion. And so they have a story about us that isn't our story. Our story is that we're refugees. Their story about us is that we are European invaders and colonialists. And what do you do with invaders and colonialists? And this will bring us right till today, and I apologize for how long this took. When you have invaders and colonialists, you do what the National Liberation Front of Algeria did to the French in Algeria. You murder them. You murder their children. You terrorize them. And the French, who were in Algeria for 130 years, flee that terror wave. A million and a half white French Europeans in 1962 all run away. The British in 1960 flee Kenya after the Mau Mau uprising. And so there has been a Palestinian terror war on us that assumes that we are European colonialists for a century. The first serious Palestinian uh, terrorism against the Jews begins in 1920. We're now in 2023. And it never works. And they don't understand why it never works. And so the, the logic of the internal discourse of the Palestinians is, what if we just do it more? Every time you see a college kid scream on an American college campus, this is decolonization. You're allowed to kill women and children. It's decolonization. What they mean is, if I terrorize the French colonialists in Algeria, they'll leave. So these are French colonialists in Algeria. Terrorize them and they'll leave. What's the problem with that? I have no France. That's what just happened. It's what happened 20 years ago in the Second Intifada with 140 suicide bombings that shattered the peace process. It's what happened time after time after time, airplane hijackings and terror attacks. And you don't have to think Israel's good. You don't have to like Israel. You can hate Israel. But you do need to understand that we are a refugee people with nowhere to go. So we're immune to terrorism. And the Palestinians resort to the kind of terrorism that Hamas showed us on Saturday. It's 100 years of that. And it's never going to work because we have nowhere to go. Yeah. How do things shift in uh, after 1948? I mean, essentially, Israel has been at war in one shape, way, shape or form, maybe not uh, declared since its inception, it seems. After 1948, everything I just said about Europe becomes true about the Arab world. Israel's Jewish population more than doubles in four years. Uh, when Israel was established in 48, I think there were 650 or 700,000 Jews. And then the Jews begin to flee the Arab world en masse. In 1930, 25% of Baghdad is Jewish. I bet most of your listeners didn't know that. Wow. Um, more than New York City. By 1952, 0% of Baghdad is Jewish. Every last Baghdadi Jew is in Israel. They are fleeing. They're fleeing um, essentially a pro-Nazi regime of Rashid Ali. You know, Look it up on Wikipedia, folks. Fascinating history. They're fleeing pogroms. They're fleeing literally Nazi established, I mean, by the Nazi embassy in Baghdad, youth movements. Um, because they were anti-British, they joined with the Nazis in World War II. And the effect culturally on Iraq, that alliance with the Nazis in World War II, was profound. And the Jews flee. The Jews of Yemen, the Jews of Egypt, the Jews of Syria, half the Jews of Israel 
we don't think the way you uh, the way Americans think in terms of categories of race. We we still have problems and divides and marginalization. Every problem you can imagine. It's just not along racial lines. But in American terms, the half the Jews of Israel come from the Arab world. They're brown. They're not white, which is again something that doesn't enter the discourse about us. We come from the Arab world. Half of us, one in two, and and that's the story of the Jews of after forty eight. The the Jewish population of Israel expands massively as all these Jewish populations run away from an Arab world that essentially kicks them out and terrorizes them. Um, and the story of the Palestinians really kind of fades away uh, because after the 48 war, of course, who's, who ends up in charge of the West Bank and Gaza? Egypt is ruling Gaza and Jordan is ruling the West Bank. Um, by the way, in military occupation, the world never recognizes Jordanian control of the West Bank. And then comes 19 years later, the 67 war. The Six-Day War is a war uh, that we know is going to be a war. We know ahead of time. The Egyptians put a naval blockade on us. That's one hint. Um, they declare <laughs> that they're going to, the Egyptian radio says, we're coming for you. We're going to kill you. Uh, there are 10,000, 13,000, uh, excuse me. There are 13,000 mass graves dug in the middle of Tel Aviv, in Yarkon Park in Tel Aviv. Israelis are expecting a war. And then... And they don't yet know that they're powerful, right? We have no technological edge over the Arabs in 1967. We have pretty good French planes. The Soviet, the Arabs have pretty good Soviet planes. There's no technological edge. And then we have this spectacular victory in which we end up also in charge of the West Bank and Gaza for the first time. And that begins the Israeli-Palestinian relationship. It's really important to understand that the Palestinian strategy of terrorizing us, the founding of the PLO, doesn't happen in 1967 when we conquer the West Bank and Gaza. It begins in 1964. The PLO is founded before Israel's in control of the West Bank and Gaza. It is founded on the model of the Algerian FLN. The FLN kicks the French out in 62 with eight years of terrorism. The Palestinians look at that and say, hey, we figured out how to kick white people out of our country. And it founds its own National Liberation Front, which it calls the Palestine Liberation Organization, and begins to carry out terror attacks against Israelis. And that is before there is an occupation in the West Bank or Gaza. All of this escalates over you know, the 70s. There are famous airplane hijackings, uh, terror attacks in the 80s. In the 70s, there's the killing of the Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics. Um, these terror attacks escalate and escalate and escalate. There's then the Lebanon War, which is a war against Palestinian terror groups in Lebanon in 1982, after they had carried out dozens of horrifying terror attacks from Lebanon. Um, that history continues right up until 1992. The peace process begins in 1992. Uh, Itzhak Rabin, the Israeli Prime Minister, and Yasser Arafat go to Oslo. They begin to sign agreements. They establish Palestinian autonomy in the West Bank. Uh, Israeli soldiers pull out of the Palestinian cities. Um, and, um, you know, they're negotiating a final status, uh, uh, what to do about, you know, dividing Jerusalem, uh, how to bring back refugees, where they go, uh, what the borders are going to be, all of the big complicated issues of Palestinian statehood. And then in, in the middle of those negotiations or during a rough period in those negotiations where the negotiations break up, um, a massive wave, beginning in September of 2000, a massive wave of 140 suicide bombings smashes Israel's cities, um, one after another for three years. It's a wave of suicide bombings from which Israel never recovers. The Israeli left 
never recovers. If you visit Israel, in some ways you will be walking around in a very happy country. We have the GDP per capita of New Zealand. So, you know, I think their main export is sheep, right? It's not America rich, but it is comfortable Western democracy rich. In other ways, you'll be walking around in a country that is still living in the post-traumatic shadow of that of those 140 suicide bombings. These are suicide bombings that targeted children. They were on buses. Um, many Israeli cities don't have school buses. So a 7.30 a.m. city bus blowing up is, a, is essentially a school bus. Um, I, every Israeli family, knows someone from that second intifada in 2000 to 2003. Um, and there have been these ways, these terror wars, the second Lebanon war in 2006, where tens of thousands of rockets fall on Israeli cities. We didn't yet have Iron Dome. We didn't yet have enough bomb shelters. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis flee their homes. I'll stop with the whole litany. You know, we're very happy people. <laughs> that, that's, that strategy and that vision of history and that history of Israeli trauma all came to a head on Saturday. Hamas just managed to pull off the greatest massacre of Jews since 1945. And for us Israelis, what does Israel meant? For us Israelis who came out of a world that could not stomach us, that spat us out or literally murdered us, Israel is the point, Israel is the moment where Jews stop dying. This is an important thing to understand, especially for English speakers, you know, Americans, Canadians. We're not American Jews. We're the other Jews. American Jews get into America by 1921 and spend the next 100 years discovering the promise of liberalism come true. They didn't go through the 20th century. And so they became liberals and they fell in love with that liberalism. And that makes perfect sense. They're, they're right. They're not wrong in America. But Israeli Jews are the Jews who had to, had to go through that 20th century. And they built a state and they built an army and they decided that you don't get rescued. You rescue yourself. You don't get emancipated. You emancipate yourself. And so our reaction to those thousand dead isn't anger. It isn't vengeance. Something much deeper is happening to my country over the last five days. Our own promise was broken to, to those kids who were massacred. We didn't fulfill the essence of our existence, which is to defend each other. And so the Israel that is now going to war in Gaza is going to war to make sure it never happens again. If Hamas survives this, we will again have violated the founding promise. We will have violated who we are. It's your fault for telling me to talk and being too polite to stop me. Yeah. Well, uh, I have, I mean, I have so many, so many questions and I sincerely appreciate you taking this time. Um, going back to the founding of Hamas, what was the impetus for the founding of Hamas and, uh, and then the differences between that and the Palestinian authority in, uh, from the eighties up to, let's say 2006, when they began to, to self-govern or were elected, um, in Gaza? Sure. Uh, the, the two major Palestinian factions are Fatah, which controls the Palestinian Authority, and Hamas. There are a few other factions, but uh, essentially Fatah is a, is a nationalist movement. It is very religious, but it's technically secular, but they're all very, very religious. Um, 
but it's a nationalist movement that wants that very much modeled on Algerian and other Arab nationalist movements uh, that wants to establish a Palestinian state um, for many decades, you know, instead of Israel after the Oslo years or during the Oslo years. Since then, it's kind of changed. It, it, you know, depending on which Fatah person you ask, you get a different answer. But um, but, you know, alongside Israel or maybe replacing Israel. But it is the party that went to the Oslo peace process and it is in control of the PLO and of the Palestinian Authority. And it sits in the West Bank. Hamas is established in the 1980s and it is um, something I think more interesting. <laughs> Um, a good a good twenty years after the establishment of Fatah, and it is a branch of the of the of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. It is a vision of Palestinian liberation that is much more interesting and much more complicated than nationalism. Hamas believes that um, we, over the last hundred and fifty years, Muslims have been asking themselves this one big question, which is. How come we're so behind? How come the West is so powerful and we're so behind? And the way you answer that question kind of shapes your society in the last 150 years throughout the Muslim world. So some Muslims said, well, the West is powerful because it had these amazing institutions that it invented over the last 400 years, the state, the university. And if we build those, we'll, we'll get our mojo back, right? And some Muslims, and that, that build wonderful things and terrible things, very liberal movements, modern movements, and um, some other liberal parties in Tunisia, for example, and uh, and the Assad regime. In other words, it, it but, but some Muslims answered the question the opposite way. They said, the reason we are weak is that the West has imposed on us its institutions. We're divided into states, right? What the heck is Iraq? What is the state of, who invented the idea of Iraq? The British to control the oil supply, who invented Lebanon? The French drew those lines in the sand, right? So the Europeans imposed on us these divides. And if we go back to an original, authentic, Muslim, pan-Islamic, no borders, one caliph, then we get our mojo back. And that's what they want to do. Now, that this has produced Al-Qaeda, right? This has produced these movements. The Muslim Brotherhood is part of the second half. It's part of the Muslim renewal world kind of worldview that says that a Muslim isn't, the Muslim's nationality is his faith, not his nation. And um, and so um, Hamas is Palestinian nationalist only when it comes to destroying Israel. Israel needs to be destroyed, not because it's not Palestine, but because it's not Islamic. It's the Jews. And once Israel's destroyed, then we turn our attention to reconquering Spain, right? <laughs> right. And uh, it's about getting Islam back on its feet. It's about Islamic renewal. And so Hamas is this branch really of the Muslim Brotherhood um, in, of Egypt that is much more religious, uh, produces uh, suicide bombings much more easily, produces more suicidal, um, in that sense, also more courageous uh, fighters in the battlefield because they are more likely to believe they're going to heaven when they die, right? Um, and Hamas, uh, until in 2006, uh, the Palestinians had a scheduled election. They are supposed to have elections every four years. They haven't had an election since 2006. Hamas ran in that election. It won that election. It uh, took power, but it was uh, Fatah didn't want to give up the reins of power, and it turned into a kind of civil war. Uh, Israel left Gaza in 2005. In 2007, two years later, there was you know no blockade on Gaza in 2005. There's no blockade in 2006. The blockade begins in 2007 after Hamas carries out a violent coup in Gaza. Two years after Israel left, not against Israel, but against the Palestinian Authority. Ever since 2007, Hamas rules Gaza. 
the Palestinian Authority rules the Palestinian-controlled areas of the West Bank. That is the divide between Fatah, the old sort of 1960s national movement, and Hamas, the 1980s religious movement. And that's really where things stand today. Well, I have a couple more questions about that, but I do want to ask you um, where you were on, on Saturday when you started hearing about the, the attacks. Um, I was home. Uh, I uh, work from home. I'm a writer. Um, and I didn't think much of them at the beginning. Um, there were some reports of rocket fire. We knew there was rocket fire. Maybe someone had crossed the border. Apparently there was some, you know, attempt to kidnap a soldier. The very first reports were incredibly confused. And almost every half hour for the next 10 hours, the scale grew and grew and grew. And so part of the trauma was, you know, it, suddenly there was a report of 20 dead, which is astonishing. How could that possibly be? And just as you sort of get used to that, 40 minutes later, there's a report that it's actually 50 dead. And you, you can't even imagine. And then 45 minutes later, they found kids' bodies. And then by the end of the day, we're at 200 dead. It, it almost felt like you're being shocked out of your complacency. Just you're you're being stunned again. It's like somebody's holding an electric shock to you and you're just being shocked again and again and again and again. Uh, we went to sleep. I think it was 200 dead. We woke up at 400 dead. That sun, you know, Monday night, uh, yeah, Sunday night, we went to sleep again. It was at, you know, 500 dead. We woke up at 700 dead. Um, and that has continued. And now we understand that it's it's going to keep rising. There's still people being found. Um, so I, I, I unfortunately work in this. Uh, I was home. I think the worst part... Um, by far was that there's a family very close to us that we um that we discovered 11 of its members uh were taken hostage into Gaza and we have been dealing with that really ever since it's an i mean an entire family i think i saw you uh, post about it on on twitter uh and it's a it's a three kids it's a is it a a brother-in-law it's a uh it, it's an entire family my wife's yeah my wife's uh friend and colleague um her sister is the mother uh the sister's husband they're two little girls the youngest is that's uh, their little girl is three and they have a little boy who's eight um and an aunt who also has a 12 year old girl and um her two pa her parents, another aunt and an elderly uncle, and the uncle's caregiver. All of them uh, taken hostage. Uh, they tried to reach them. You know, in on Saturday morning, they lost touch with them when um, the Hamas gunmen were in Kibbutz Be'eri. That's the little village where they lived, um, and they tried to call them. And on Saturday evening, the Israeli army finally got there and found the house burned down but all the bodies missing, there were no bodies and they tried to call them all night. And then Sunday morning, they got through to one of the phones and uh, a man with a uh, Arabic, a Palestinian Arabic accent answered the phone and said, uh, kidnapped in Gaza in broken Hebrew and then hung up. And that's the last they've heard of them. And uh, ever since then, we have been mounting a campaign to uh, try to get them back, to try to convince Hamas to try to convince Hamas to, to just let go of the kids, just the kids, you know, those, uh, those three kids are uh, German citizens. Also, they have dual citizenship, uh, I believe through their father. So there are three German kids 
held hostage by Hamas. The youngest is a three-year-old girl. Hamas massacred children on Saturday. We don't know what's happened to her. We don't know how she's doing. Um, we have the we have met the German ambassador. I, I didn't. The family did. We helped facilitate some of this. We to go on international television, German television, MSNBC, CNN. You know, we've been all over the world. Indian television to try and get the message out, to try and get pressure, uh, and just to try and say to Hamas, you know, you've already got this war with Israel. Don't start murdering, you know, Germans. We don't know what's going to convince Hamas that in all this bloodshed and in all this insanity that it has brought on all of us, you should just let go of the three kids. But uh, we're trying everything. And uh, can we go back to the history? That's a lot uh, easier. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm yeah, just yeah. kidding. I'm just <laughs> kidding. Um, but uh, we're not uh, we're not in a good place. No, it's I mean, it's so. And there, there's a few different paradigms that I want to ask you about that seem to have shifted or some even been been shattered uh, in a very short period of time in a period of, well, essentially seconds um, starting on Saturday. But um, Hamas isn't even trying to hide what they're doing. In fact, they're they're using social media, once again, something that was supposed to bring us together, touted as something to connect us all uh, for a better world at its in, inception, you know, 20 some years ago. Um and now it's being used as a as a tool. It's just a tool like anything else. I I guess it is, but uh, being a tool of uh, of warfare um, and manipulation. Um, but in this case, Hamas is using it worldwide to broadcast this terror, this killing of innocents, these atrocities, doing things that if people have watched the news, um, getting people's phones who they've kidnapped and live streaming their executions to the family members who then pick up on FaceTime or Zoom or whatever it, it might be. Um, so they're using this as a rallying cry worldwide or because you see the 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 people in in well New York, in Paris, in Berlin, in Sydney, in London um, that are reeling to it. Hamas and cheering and in Sydney saying gas the Jews. That's the chant. And it wasn't one person, it was an entire crowd yelling gas the jews in sydney um so it seems that this tactic of 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 projecting these uh, these crimes real time over social media is working as a rallying cry how do you how do you see it um a lot of israelis are comparing uh, Hamas to Islamic State. Um, a lot of Muslims are comparing the, the, this this televised, thrilling, excited laughter um, as they um, you know murder children. Um, when Islamic State started putting out its um, its execution videos, there was a big discussion among Western pundits and academics. What are they doing? Right? I mean, they're making themselves look bad. And it suddenly dawned on some, there were some very clever people who had been studying terror groups for many years who started to explain it to all of us. And what they explained was that these videos were recruitment videos. If you're Islamic State, if you're ISIS, you need as many people in the world who want to execute people. You need them in your ranks and you want them to come. And so that's what that was. So to the rest of us, it was turning, they were telling us they were monsters. But there are monsters out there 
who watched that and came. And so for Hamas, it's there are two things I think were happening. One was it, it you know this vision of Islamic renewal through the defeat of the Jews. Most Palestinians think of Israel or think of Zionism or think of the Jews, whether it's an enemy. Many, many Palestinians don't think of them as an enemy. Two million Palestinians have Israeli citizenship and tell us in polls that Israel, being Israeli is a big part of their identity. It's really, really important to understand that there are very many, very complicated, very large, different camps and views among the Palestinians. It's a whole political world, identity world. But many Palestinians do think that we are something inauthentic, fake, imposed on them by imperialism and colonialism, and that they will eventually kick us out, and that that and and they think that, but but it stops there. In other words, we're a bad nation that came from somewhere else and has to be kicked out. But for Hamas, we're something more than that. We are a rebellion against God's trajectory for history. God has a trajectory for history. There is a God, it's a God of justice, and it, and this God of justice oversees uh, an arc of justice to all of history, and there's redemption at the end of that history. Now, this is not a strange view. This is the Jewish view, the Christian view, every monotheistic faith, Baha'is, every monotheistic faith you'll look at has this view that there's a just God overseeing a just arc to history. In the case of Hamas's vision, we are a rebellion against that, and so we don't just need to be defeated we need to be humiliated and we need to be dehumanized because we are rebels against God. And um, and that's what that was. That was a an attempt to say to Palestinians, you can make them run, you can make them weep, you can humiliate them, you can dominate them, you can destroy them. They are rebels against God. They are not human in the way that believers are human. And so the broadcasting wasn't it wasn't them getting out of hand. It wasn't them getting a little bloodlust. That was the point of the whole thing. It wasn't the killing of Jews. It was the showing the Jews that they are killing the Jews. Um, and that is one reason that the Israel that is now standing at that border with 300,000 fighting men uh, is not going to uh, walk away without the heads of of Hamas without Hamas uh, destroyed. Yeah. Even yeah. by the way, if the government decides to, the public won't let it. Yeah. And I were to ask you about that too. Um, the uh, do you think it is possible to eliminate uh, a group like Hamas, or is it with just my experience in Iraq and Afghanistan? Um, it seems. We spent 20 years trying to do it. Of course, there were many missteps along the way, uh, and and at the end. And anyway, there's a there's a lot of mistakes there. But is it possible to eliminate, or is it just a degradation of uh, of a force to back to more tolerable levels, uh, like has been essentially the policy? It seems like for for a decade, um, uh, tolerating certain levels. But uh, obviously, this this paradigm has changed. But uh, getting back to that question, is it possible to eliminate Hamas, or is it something that's going to get degraded through this military and intelligence action um, and go back to a tolerable level? And tolerable is a horrible word to use. I realize that. But... No, no, of course, of course. Um, but it's the right word to use. Um, it's a very good question. Um, the short answer is, I don't know. Uh, the long answer is, I don't think the Israeli leadership 
I don't think the military leadership really knows. I don't think it matters. Because there is a moment in a nation's life where one priority takes precedence over every other priority. And the credit that, that the public, that the nation gives to its government to carry out what it believes is that priority becomes infinite. And then it almost doesn't matter what it's going to take. In other words, Hamas gets to decide whether this goes easily, whether this is quick, whether it leaves and then it's easy to rebuild Gaza. And people don't remember, but before Hamas in 2007, Israelis were investing massively in Gaza. And my uncle was the CFO of a textile company, a company that had you know clothing stores in every mall, and all of their stitching was done in Gaza. And then, and then, and then came Hamas and the terrorism, and they moved to Jordan. And now the Jordanians are getting, you know, are, are have those jobs and those investments of of, of the Israeli economy. Um, it, it isn't hard to rebuild Gaza, but it doesn't mean that Hamas can't be there anymore. Hamas is no longer exactly the word you used, a tolerable threat. We believed Hamas was tolerable because it was contained, because it would do these little tit-for-tat kind of wars, but they were small wars. Small wars doesn't mean that the you know hundreds of people who die in them don't matter, and it's not a horrible tragedy for them, but they're small in the sense that they're much, much less than the actual capabilities of the sides. In other words, both sides want them to be a limited engagement. That's over. All those calculations are over. Hamas cannot be allowed to exist because Jewish babies were massacred. And so it's over. And it doesn't, you know, so you asked a question about how do you do it? Where do you do it? America and Afghanistan was willing to invest um, a lot of goodwill, a lot of money, some blood, but it wasn't infinite. And America and Iraq was willing to invest more, but it wasn't infinite. But, you know, America in, in Japan and America in Nazi Germany was willing to invest infinite resources. It wouldn't have mattered. When the war started in 40, in, when uh, Pearl Harbor happened, I think the U.S. Army was was training with wooden rifles. Wooden rifles because they didn't have real rifles for training. They had scaled back after World War I so much. By the time that war ended, you know, folks, check it, look it up. I hope I'm getting the number right. I believe America was turning out a warship every 38 minutes by, by the end of that war. Regardless, so, it was a lot. Industrial. America... The industrial base was built up, the military was built up, and America went to a war that it understood it cannot afford to lose. And the very fact that it invented the nuke meant that Japan couldn't continue to be this mortal threat. And, um, you know, I remember uh, reading somewhere about the preparations in California because there was a long time there where there was nothing that could have stopped a, a Japanese landing in California. So I think that one of the differences between America able to reshape countries after the Second World War and America being unable to reshape countries uh, in the last 30 years is that these are seen not by the public and not by Congress and not by the American leadership as existential. They're dangerous. They're important. They're enemies. We, maybe we can bring democracy to the Middle East. I don't know. You know, there are all these theories, and, and I don't want to get into them. You guys know more about them than I do, but they're not life or death. When it's life or death, it doesn't matter what it costs. Israel is in that mind space. And so I don't know what it'll take. But Hamas will not survive this. Yeah. Seems like uh, they managed to unite uh, 
divided Israel. And uh, I was going to ask you about that too, the the recent division on the the executive and judicial side of the house. And do you think that led into uh, the timing of this event? I suspect it did uh, for the simple reason that um, the leadership of Hamas, of Hezbollah in Lebanon, of Iran, have given speeches about it. Mm-hmm. They've they've you know the leader of Iran, Ayatollah Khamenei. Uh, gave a speech in which he said, "We're watching Israel self-immolate. It is going to disappear. It is it is collapsing. This is the promise of God." Blah blah blah. You know, Ayatollah speeches—they're very boring. Um, and then we heard the head of Hezbollah, Nasrallah, say the same thing. And then we heard the heads of Hamas say the same thing. So I, I do think it's possible that Hamas, Hezbollah, and Iran really did believe, really did believe that this very deep schism and this real profound constitutional crisis. And this moment of decision that our populate that our society was at, and that is now frozen temporarily. We're going to get back to being at each other's throats as soon as this war is over. You know, we're very good at that, but it is frozen for the war. But they really did believe that that was us collapsing, and um, I think that, uh, as you said, I think that that's going to prove to be a miscalculation. Um, there are supply problems in the army. The army doesn't have enough. Um, uh, battle vests and and helmets. I know these words in Hebrew. I'm trying to remember the English. Uh, it doesn't have basic combat supplies. And so we were very concerned that maybe the army was really unprepared and we went looking and it turns out that um, the army called up X number of men, but 120% of that showed up. And so <laughs> Israelis are knocking down the doors to get into this war. And the flights to Israel are packed with young men who are off with jobs or students or just touring or whatever who who need to be here now and and to join the fight and that is something that is absolutely foundational to us and and it's back it's a it's a strange way to put it but that is a gift to be reminded it takes a crisis and a bloody one and an awful one but sometimes in these terrible moments we're reminded of our strengths yeah, I've seen the pictures of those packed flights coming in. People have been posting them on uh, on social channels. Um, and I wanted to ask you as a, uh, a journalist, um, fog of war, uh, things coming out, initial reports, as we all know, eyewitness reports, oftentimes of two people seeing the same event, um, differ. The car is blue, the car is red. They're both standing right there, 10 feet from it. Uh, yet 10 minutes later, when they're interviewed by uh, law enforcement, they give a Bright red, bright blue, um, totally different. Um, so when we're seeing initial reports come out uh, about the atrocities, um, and it seems like people are just very unforgiving these days, particularly because of social media, whatever that has done to us um, to make conversations uh, the, the way they go online when there are no consequences to what you say, uh, or very few consequences to what you say. Um, initial reports coming out, I wanted to ask you about that as a as a journalist when we see uh babies being beheaded reported by cnn you see it reported by cbs news you see it reported by fox news so established news organizations and then you see a journalist on the ground saying the same thing obviously traumatized by the things that they've seen and what they're hearing from soldiers coming out of these houses with body bags also uh under um, enormous stress obviously traumatized with what they've just seen inside um so so i wanted to ask you about those reports and what do you think of those uh some of those initial reports of babies being beheaded and uh, babies being cut out of their mother's wombs? yeah um yeah it's two things to say <laughs> um there's a debate underway 
in the media, in the Western media, over whether babies were or were not beheaded. Um, and it's a debate that <laughs> we speak Hebrew, Israelis. We're not part of that conversation. We don't listen to it. Ever since Saturday, we don't care about it. We are profoundly, deeply unconnected to the world's debate about us. It appears the facts as I understand them, and I understand them because I've been very closely following everything and because I've, I've seen some of the specific details and, and, and the footage, but the facts as I understand them was that we have uh, roughly, roughly, you know, four dozen babies. Um, there's, they're identified, but not everyone is yet found. There are some bodies. They, they, they set bodies on, they set houses on fire. They, they came to houses and many families, every home in Israel is required by the building codes to have a safe room that is um, a bomb shelter that is resistant to shells and that can be locked. And so families went into those safe rooms and uh, the Hamas fighters couldn't get into them, couldn't get them out. Um, these these safe rooms are uh, impervious to, to rocket attacks, so they're also impervious to bullet fire. Um, so they set the houses on fire to smoke them out. And so there are, you know, dozens of burned bodies, and they include children. All of that is absolutely true. We have one video that I have seen uh, of a man working very hard uh, to chop off the head of an adult in one of the houses and filming it and laughing and thinking it's a great fun. By the way, the adult was severely wounded, but not actually dead while they were trying to chop his head off. And that's, a, that's again, that's a video. You can find it on TikTok, on Twitter. If you can't find it, go to the Pro Hamas Twitter. They'll, it'll be there. Um, so there were beheadings. They seem to have been um, done humorously, done you know on the side that the, the beheading wasn't part of the of the strategy of the great you know the, they basically ran through and shot every baby they could find in their cribs, uh, and they did that dozens of times. One of the reporters who went through one of these villages, fifteen different villages and towns were hit. One of these villages, one of the reporters went through and took that reports of the beheadings and these dead babies' bodies, including burned ones, which are also very disfigured, and said the sentence, they beheaded 40 babies. Now, we've been burying these babies. They're not 40 beheaded babies. That was just a mistake. And it was, it, was, um, it was shock affecting, bleeding into how they spoke on live television. It wasn't more than that. It wasn't a lie, but it also wasn't true. It, it wasn't a lie in the sense that the intent wasn't a lie. That report is so horrifying that it was picked up and ran on social media. There were beheadings and there were mass murders of babies. Were there mass beheadings of babies? No. There is now a fight. <laughs> it's been hard to be on social media for the last five days because too many people um, are too many people are engaging in deeply shallow and ridiculous ways. With, uh, with with an atrocity. Um, journalists who think that the correction of how many babies are beheaded is the most fundamental and important thing and gone on a crusade about it are dehumanizing. Getting the story right is important. Making it your campaign, and by the way, you have other tweets there that are pretty sympathetic to Hamas, is not important. It's a different kind of lying. So anyway, 
that's what I have to say about it. I find it all grotesque. I find the whole debate about it grotesque. The story of the beheaded babies um, has made the rounds. President Biden said it, but then issued a correction. He was working off Israeli news reports that were already a day old. The Israeli news reports right now uh, have corrected. There is a chance, and this is what we don't know yet, and I can't find out, basically because of the fog of war, as you mentioned, that there are beheaded babies. That is not impossible. But if there are, then it's a, it's a handful. It's not 40. What the hell are we discussing? Mm -hmm. I'll give you that Hamas didn't literally take, you know, it's hard to behead someone. There's a lot of bone. There's a lot of muscle. Should we get into this? That's a weird thing to get into. You don't want to slow down so you don't behead. You shoot and you move on. Does that make them slightly better? Or does that prove that none of this happened, which is what some Hamas supporters, especially in Britain, have now launched? Mainstream people, people who talk to members of parliament, have launched a campaign that says, well, if that's a lie, then how do we know 260 people died at the at the festival? All those movies were Hamas movies. They were Hamas. It's a little, you know, you only need to believe Hamas. You don't need to believe me, but they're going to launch this campaign. Yeah. Jews no longer wait for other people's opinion. So I couldn't, I couldn't give a fuck. I'm sorry. Can I say that on your show? I apologize. Sure. I cannot express how little I care about this discourse. It is not honest. It is not serious. It doesn't matter. It is literally a way to avoid the vastness of what happened. And by the way, the horrific suffering that is to come. This is also important to say. Hamas ran away after the massacre into Gaza. And Hamas in Gaza now has one strategy and one strategy only, and it literally has no other strategy. And that is to hide underneath the civilian population of Gaza. There isn't some other way Hamas is going to fight us. There isn't some other way Hamas is going to survive this. And so it is making us, if we need to get Hamas, and we need to get Hamas, it is no longer a question. It is making us reach through Gaza's civilian population to pull them out. Their first crime against humanity was committed on Jews, and their second crime against humanity is being committed to Palestinians. And it's being committed now by the fact that they're hiding under literally in the tunnels underneath cities, and we will get them out. Because we don't accept that there's some kind of pretend international law that says that you can be invincible as long as you put human babies on top of you. That is not international law, even if some professors who don't like Israel anyway pretend that that's international law. We will drag them out and we will rescue Gaza from Hamas. I talked to a Palestinian a uh, friend, well, I don't know if he'd call himself a friend. We debated the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He does not like Israel, but we do have a respect for each other. I talked to him on, on Monday, I think it was. And he said to me, we, there was already airstrikes beginning in Gaza. And he said to me, you're committing a crime in Gaza, but you're going to commit a bigger crime. The bigger crime is that after Gaza civilians pay all the price of you going after Hamas, you're not going to finish the job. He thinks Israel is a terrible thing and he wishes Israel disappeared. But get Hamas out of there. That is something that you, you hear from almost all Palestinians you talk to. So these people in America and in Britain and in, you know, in Paris who, who, who scream that this is decolonization and this is glory and this is resistance, they don't represent Palestinians. Hamas is the devastation of Palestine. If you support Palestinians, if you want to boycott Israel, 
and pressure Israel and squeeze Israel because you think it's bad and wrong toward Palestinians. Your number one obstacle is Hamas. That you Hamas keeps undermining you. You want to really squeeze us? Get rid of Hamas, then come after us and it'll actually work. Yeah. And I want to ask you about one of the, another one of these paradigms. Um, Gilead Shalit, yeah, I'm sure, I don't know if sure I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Is Gilad Shalit, yeah. Uh, captured in 2006, held for over five years and exchanged for, was it a, a thousand um, prisoners? Um, but that- yeah, 12, uh, almost 1,200 or 1,100, yeah. So that model of uh, hostages for, for prisoners, um, does that shift? Going forward, is that one of the the paradigms or one of the the, the tolerances that has essentially um, existed for the last decade plus? Has that been shattered? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Hamas took two hundred hostages, um, and therefore changed how we think about hostages. We will give eleven 1, hundred people, including mass murderers with blood on their hands, who had to get a special pardon to get out of prison. It wasn't some kind of thing that could easily be done by the government. We had to hand those over for Gilad Shalit, and it was worth it. I supported it at the time. I wrote in support of it. I, I want to say that. In other words, it's Netanyahu did it. There was a lot of criticism of him. I wrote in support of it. But by getting Gilad Shalit back, and by the way, he is among us. <laughs> you know, Please forgive me, Gilad, if you hear this, I want to say something that isn't personal about you. But by paying that price for Gilad Shalit, now we have 200 Gilad Shalits, and some of them are little babies. And so Hamas has now made it no longer worthwhile for us to do this. It has, it has made hostages irrelevant. And so we are as enraged as you would be if they took your children, but also unwilling to negotiate because it went too far. There's, you know, it gives us, we have nothing to lose. And so those hostages may not be rescued. I sure hope so. I've been doing, no, I have slept two hours every night for the last five nights. Working on this, I'm in a group of more than a hundred volunteers who have been sleepless and working on this one family. And there are dozens of families. Um, but we will burn a path to their door. What they do to those hostages uh, will will determine. I don't know how to put it. How they die, uh, we can't. We can never. This will never happen again. It, it, there's no other. I, it's hard to explain what it feels like to be Israeli right now. Yeah. Those two hundred hostages, how they were taken, how women with blood coming out of their crotches were paraded through the streets of Gaza. This is not something that. Uh, Hamas has 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 uh, has determined its fate. They and they earned it. They really earned. They really did a good job on that one. Yeah. Now, money going into Gaza from the United States, from Europe, from Iran, um, and set funding sources both uh, above board and illicit. Um, what is the, what did that look like, and what does that look like today? And how how much did humanitarian aid enable this attack? Yeah, um, there is criticism of this. Uh, there's a lot of, especially European aid money, there's a, a lot of American aid money to an organization called UNRWA, which is a branch of the UN, and a huge debate and discussion, and it gets very deep and very complicated. Um, I hesitate to criticize either the Biden administration, 
sort of renewing some of the aid to UNRWA or the German government, you know, funding e through the EU, a lot of this aid. And the reason I hesitate to criticize is that this was the Israeli strategy. For the last about 15 years, the Israeli government has thought that you can essentially buy stability with, with, with its aid money. And so it hasn't just been okay with American funding for UNRWA, German funding for a lot of these aid organizations. It's actually allowed Qatar, which is a pro-Hamas regime, to send you know monthly deliveries of $20 million in cash into the Strip as a way to stabilize Hamas, because a stable Hamas is a stable southern border. This was the Israeli concept. So, um, you know, Americans are having this debate now. Did the Biden administration act unwisely? Was it very foolish? Was it this and that? I personally believe that, yes, uh, the answer is uh, the entirety of the West, the way it has been funding uh, Palestinians, has in various ways been exploited by bad actors on the ground among Palestinians, especially Hamas, uh, in ways that I don't think anyone in the West wants. Um, but... Israel not only wanted it, Israel did it itself. And so we are in no position to bring that complaint before the governments of the world. Uh, it won't be how things work going forward. Everyone understands that. Um, and and both, you know, the German Chancellor, President Biden, they have they have come out for us in ways that we did not expect uh, and that are absolutely astonishing. And uh, and so so there's a huge amount of criticism and, you know, looking back and thinking carefully about how that all went down. But I, I don't think that uh, an Israeli has a right right now to complain about that because it was Israel's policy. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about the protests in Berlin and London and Sydney and New York. What do you think it says about uh, the state of, uh, I guess, higher education when you see student groups at elite "Quote unquote," uh, universities in the United States coming out in support of Hamas. Um, the student groups are pro-Hamas, and to have some students pro-Hamas in a uh, campus of twenty thousand, fifty thousand, sometimes a hundred thousand students—whatever these are very, you know, different kinds of institutions. Each university, but uh, you know, I don't mind that you have twelve Hamas supporters on campus. You know, um, young people like to do radical things because it makes them feel important. Um, it's the university presidents. It's the cowardice. The president of Cornell who can't just say, this was that, and that's what it was. The president, the, the administration of Harvard that needed three days and a, a huge storm of anger and criticism to just say Hamas committed a crime against humanity. And it didn't even say it that way. The hemming and hawing. You know, um, Ben Sass, the former senator who's the president of the University of Florida, the University of Florida is more diverse in more ways than the Ivy League. The Ivy League works very hard to, to look diverse. But when you actually look at incomes, the University of Florida is more diverse. The single university in America with the largest number of Jews is the University of Florida. It's not any of these Ivy Leagues. A lot of Jews in the Ivy Leagues. And you know what? All the best to them. They're going to be great doctors one day. But the single biggest Jewish university in America is the University of Florida. And and the president of that university came out and said this was an atrocity and a crime. I mean, people, I, I'm not quoting it exactly, but that's the tone and that's the message. And, and people should look up that message. No Ivy League institution was able to do that. That, to me, is a disease. That is shocking. Because, because Israel is tearing itself apart. I mean, till last week, Israel was tearing itself apart 
over its democracy, over Palestinians and the Palestinian policy of this government. Um, if you want to take a side on that and criticize Israel, it doesn't matter what your position is, 30% of Israelis are with you in that position, almost no matter what the position is. that Fantastic, they do that, scream, fight, argue, debate. But if if you don't have clarity on 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 the the butchering of of, of children, then then you uh, you are you are in a bad place. I, I want to even say something tougher than that. The Jewish experience of Europe before the Holocaust and during the Holocaust was that the most educated people were the most dangerous at every turn in Romania, in Poland, in uh, Hungary, and in Nazi Germany. Um, if you go to uh, Timothy Snyder, he has a book Bloodlands about about the uh, Nazi about the Holocaust in the East. Um, he uh, finds there, and it's a long, well-known thing that most of the commanders of the Einsatzgruppe and the Nazi uh, teams only about only only he said only about three million Jews were killed in you know gas chambers and concentration camps. About three million, the other three million were killed by these Einsatzgruppe and literally rounding up Jews all over Eastern Europe and a lot of their helpers locally uh, and killing them with with bullets and so which was very expensive which is one of the reasons that in 44 they turned to gas because it was cheaper um they turned to gas earlier but they really invested in gas because they were running out of money for bullets um but these Einsatzgruppen um of these large divisions 15 out of 25 of their commanders had phds uh, the Nazi machinery was run by extremely well-educated people who could read German philosophers and memorized entire passages and tracts of, uh, of Goethe, and, uh, and they could still commit genocide. Being an intellectual doesn't mean you can't become a monster. It just means you sound better when you're doing monstrous things. And so nobody in any of these universities can think that if they can cleverly find their way around the problem of, of not saying that this was a massacre, that then they are morally somehow exempt. The Ivy League showed that it was morally corrupt, morally bankrupt. These university presidents know exactly what happened, and they know what they think about it. They don't belong to those students who think that this is decolonization and therefore heroic, which means that they're cowards. They are cowards over the dead bodies of children. I think I've said that enough. Yeah, I, I read that this morning from the uh, uh, University of Florida. I read that uh, that statement. It's one page. Um, and I was very proud of uh, two of the companies that I'm associated with in the entertainment industry, uh, which I thought would just remain quiet because it seems safer for these large corporations almost. Um, so I was surprised and so proud. Uh, first one I saw was from Skydance. Um, of course, they did Top Gun Maverick and uh, the Mission Impossible films. And they came out very strong uh, immediately. Uh, it was the, the next day CAA, which is my talent agency, also came out extremely strong, very cool. Very strong statement, um, and I, I I wrote to them to them both and said how how proud I was of them uh, for for doing that because you don't see it across the board. Major League Baseball uh, did, did Major League Baseball, well. yeah, they have a statement that's very strong as well. Those are the three Playboy. That I, oh yeah, that's right. They they Playboy. <laughs> you know, nobody is confused about this except the elite academia. Interesting. And again, you know. You can be very left-wing on Israel. If this confuses you, this has nothing to do with you being left-wing or right-wing. This has to do with you not knowing what dead babies are. Yeah. This is not something you get to be confused about. No, no. It's a uh, dep depravity of the soul um, 
And uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's almost un unthinkable that you can look at this and support it. Um, the future of Gaza, we talked a little bit about that, but uh, short-term, long-term, when you look at the next couple of weeks, um, and obviously we don't know what the, the military intelligence services are, are thinking as they plan, we can take some pretty good guesses though. Um, what does the future of Gaza look like? Uh, two weeks and then five years, what does that look like? Um, what a good question. Um, what does the future of Gaza look like today? The Israeli, um, uh, what is today, Thursday? The Israeli commander of the army, Herzi Alevi, uh, gave us this cryptic sentence. He said, Gaza will not look like what it did before, and he promised to dismantle Hamas. That was the word he used. Um, I don't know. I know what those soldiers want. I know what the Israeli voting public won't settle for and what it what it will what it's demanding, what it's what its minimum is. Hmm. And that will happen. And if this government doesn't deliver it, then this government will be replaced in a month and some other government will deliver it. And this government knows it. Hmm. Um but then how do you rebuild? What do you rebuild? What do you put there? Hamas was uh, Hamas now showed itself uh, to be very daring, and to some kinds, certain kinds of, of Palestinians and ideologues, uh, that's very thrilling and very inspiring. And so the idea, for the moment, is spreading like wildfire. The idea of Hamas. It's very hard to kill an idea. So the idea itself has to be proven to be catastrophic. And um, and so it, 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 there will be this destruction of Hamas, but there will be a destruction, a willingness going forward to immediately destroy all Hamas, Hamasish, Hamas-like, Hamas ideas, Hamas people, Hamas arguments, Hamas um, support for Hamas is no longer an option. Turkey sent money to Hamas. Qatar has been sending money to Hamas, just because Israel now. Just because Israel now says you can't doesn't mean they're going to want to stop, but Israel will make it stop. And so Hamas is now the suicide of Palestine. If Palestinians want to build something, it cannot be through Hamas. And if it is through Hamas, it cannot be built. And that is a grim determination that is, I think, impossible to break. The Israelis will do anything it takes to make that make sure that that's the case. And so the until the idea of Hamas is demolished and the Palestinians have a new idea, of how to deal with us, of how to build their polity, their state, their two-state solution, their whatever, whatever they want, whatever they decide. But it cannot be built through this framework of Hamas and through the vision of us being removed, and that's all over. It, we can no longer afford it. Yeah. So uh, what does the next two weeks look like? It's quite possible that the, in, that uh, within the next two weeks, the uh, ground war begins. Uh, it's very expensive to hold 300,000 reservists on the border. That's the, the Israeli economy is ground to a halt. There are no buses anywhere. Um, businesses are shut down. Um, so we can afford it. It's not, it's, it's one, you know, it's at, at worst case in area, it's one, you know, COVID shutdown. We can afford it and we are willing to afford it. Uh, but it is expensive and I think they're going to want to do it. Uh, they're working on the element of surprise. They're working on clearing uh, paths for the soldiers to go into Gaza with airstrikes, um, which is, of course, causing suffering in Gaza itself, obviously, and quite a lot of it. And I do want to say that and acknowledge it. I know it. 
uh, Hamas is behind those civilians and we have to get to Hamas. And so this Hamas is responsible for those deaths. That, by the way, is international law. Um, not certain academics version of international law, but actual international law. That is what America accepts as international law when it goes to war. Um, so all of that is happening. I think in the next two weeks, the ground war probably begins. In two months, I think we will be deep into the ground war, and there is a very good chance we'll be deep into a war in Lebanon as well, because Iran and Hezbollah will try and save Hamas by launching this second front. They believe that Islam needs to just prove that it can come back into history and into wor the world and into being a powerful agent of history by first destroying Israel. By the way, it eventually has to come to destroy America, just so you know, that's the official doctrine of uh, of uh, Iran and Hezbollah, so just heads up. Um, but um, that is something that uh, we may well see in two months. We'll be deeper into the war. I think it's a good three, four months before we're talking about any meaningful, um, you know, pullback and uh, and and peace. That is my guess. I don't think Israeli generals know yet, but that is my guess. Do you think the carrier battle group that's been uh, sent to the Med does uh, will have a deterrent effect on Iran uh, and its support of Hezbollah from the north, from Lebanon? Uh, and I would suspect they haven't announced it yet, but I would suspect there's another carrier battle group moving into the the, the uh, Strait of Hormuz. But I don't I don't know that for for certain. But uh, do you think those will have uh, be detrimental? Does America powerful enough still project enough strength to be able to deter Iran from supporting a Hezbollah attack from the north? It does when it wants to. Uh, America keeps uh, kind of pretending to project strength, doesn't believe it itself, and then nobody believes it, and then it pulls back uh, because nobody believed it. Um, that was an unfair criticism. I apologize, but that's that's basically how America has been has been functioning. Americans, by the way, I understand deeply. Americans don't want these wars. They don't think they get much out of them. They cost a huge amount. Uh, presidents don't want to saddle their population with these wars. I accept that and I respect that deeply. Israeli soldiers don't travel to the other side of the world, not even as peacekeepers. We don't put our soldiers under UN command in some place that uh, no UN force can actually control them and save them and protect them. So so we are ourselves very, very careful about our troops and, and all of that. So we do less than America. So just when I say America doesn't do it, that, it you know, it's not a criticism. But uh, right now, there is a sense, I know that there's a sense in Iran and in Hezbollah, and I know it because of how quickly every single tit-for-tat, uh, we've had a few incidents on the northern border with Hezbollah, and Hezbollah very, very quickly keeps putting out a statement, we do a little thing, and then it says, oh, we're done. And it says, oh, we're done to make sure there's no escalation. It's terrified of an escalation. There is a sense that uh, President Biden sent those forces uh, to provide cover to tell Iran not to fight. But there is a strong possibility that in fact, I'll put it simply, um, I'll just be very blunt. Um, 1,200 Jews were slaughtered. If that's not a strategic reshuffle of the region, then Israel has betrayed their memory. If this is, you know, Gaza is a high-cost, low-reward theater. Israel needs to destroy Hamas. 
Hamas is making it expensive in Palestinian lives and also in Israeli soldiers' lives and also in Israeli civilian lives. There'll be, there'll be terror attacks, there'll be rocket fire. We do have to do it. But there are other arenas, people who have funded Hamas, trained Hamas. The very kind of operation we saw in, Le in, in Gaza, Hezbollah in Lebanon has been planning for a decade. It's put videos on YouTube showing themselves training for exactly that kind of border crossing, taking over of Israeli villages and massacring its residents. Um, we've written stories about it in my newspaper. Hezbollah is now an intolerable threat. What did we learn on Saturday? We learned that the 10 years of quiet or 15 years of quiet that we bought from Hamas, we bought on credit. And that those Israelis who died on Saturday paid our bill. And so those years of quiet are no longer years of quiet. Right now, Hezbollah has 140,000 rockets hidden in underneath the villages and towns of South Lebanon. Every single one is under a home. Every single one is under a village. Hezbollah is very proud of this. This isn't even an Israeli claim. Those 140,000 rockets aren't there not to be used. And if they're there to be used, you don't buy more years of quiet. You don't wait for that war to be with 240,000 rockets. So I think that there is a willingness in Israel that we didn't see before to do that, to go to that war and to solve that problem. And it would be done in ways that Israel wasn't willing to do before. And I'll say one last thing. There is a willingness in Israel now to solve the Iran problem once and for all. Now, if the killing of 1,200 Jews, massacring them in that way, smashes the Iranian nuclear program, smashes Hezbollah in ways that Lebanon struggles to recover from, or maybe recovers very quickly from, because Hezbollah is finally gone, that albatross, you know, bringing it down, and, and, and finally uproots Hamas, then it will have had the, then, then the region will look at Israel and say, okay, maybe they're not, maybe they're not in decline, like all these Islamist, you know, theoreticians keep telling us. So there is a desire in Israel to do that. And what people like me have been asking is, is that is that the game plan? In other words, is Biden saying, we're sending carriers to the Middle East uh, to strike groups with aircraft carriers? That's, that's an astonishing amount of firepower. Mm -hmm. Are we sending them to the Middle East to warn Iran not to attack Israel? Uh, or are we sending them to the Middle East as air cover for the much larger war? that the Israelis and the Americans have, that the Americans finally, you know, that the Americans agree the Israelis need to do, and that the Israelis explain to the Americans they're going to do whether they want to or not, so the Americans at least want to be in on it to help shape it and help, you know, help make it successful. So it's one of those kinds of dynamics, I suspect. And uh, it might be something, you know, I'm not in the war room. I'm not planning. I don't have security clearance for that. Right? But, but, but I talk to Israelis every hour of every day. And uh, this is not one of those moments where it's going to be another round in Gaza that everyone then goes home. Seems like a very pivotal moment in uh, in history right now, um, depending on how things move forward, as you just described. Do you think that the uh, the intelligence services of Israel, um, who haven't uh, enjoyed is not the right word, but this aura of not invincibility, but there was a question no one ever knew, like where they had people in Hamas and Hezbollah in Iran, uh, what proxy forces they had uh, out there working. There was this mystique to it. Do you think some of that was was shattered over the the weekend? I don't know. Um, 
if they're stupid, then yes. Um, Israel had a horrific um, failure, absolutely horrific. And the chief of staff said so. He said this was a disastrous failure. This was our failure. And we're going to learn this failure. And we're going to draw conclusions from this failure. I think what he was saying was, I'll resign when the war's over. He didn't say those words, but but I think he said that. He also has a very, I, I, I people, there's a general respect for the man. He's, he's quite a good, a good general and, and a man of integrity. And this was a disastrous failure all up the command chain, which means he has to pay for it, obviously. But but every single stage in the command chain failed here. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean it's an incompetent army. And that doesn't mean it's an army that doesn't know how to, every single success, all the astonishing intelligence successes, this almost magical way that weapon shipments going through the northern Iraqi desert suddenly blow up and nobody knows how. Um, all that Israeli capability. Um, somebody bought a desk in Iran and took it into their office underground inside a nuclear facility and the explosion took out hallways and half a building underground inside a nuclear facility. The Mossad knows how to deliver furniture that is booby-trapped at a massive scale. None of that's gone. This is still a competent country. It's a competent army. It's an army, in fact, that was too competent. Um, we had these massive technological uh, networks along the border that could watch everything. We had seismic sensors to, to detect anyone chipping away at a rock as they dig a tunnel under the border. What we didn't have is ordinary plain grunts and infantry actually sitting on the border to respond when something happens. So what Hamas did was um, all across the border, they've been looking at these sensors and tracking these sensors for, for 10 years. Uh, in, in one or two minutes, they had people all over the border take out every sensor. And then everybody was blind. And I don't think there were 200 infantrymen in the entire stretch of the border. So they got so, um, you know, mentally, it appears this is, you know, it's still early days. But what it looks like happened was all these clever military planners got so enamored with their tech that they forgot that you also just need a guy on the ground with some sense, you know, between his ears to actually solve the problem that, they, that you know, the problem the enemy imposes on you, um, you know, that uh all your good plans, you do all the best planning, and then you meet the enemy, and every last plan gets thrown out the window. You still need those plans because you're going to use pieces of them as you respond to the enemy's surprise. But so, so what happened here was a little bit maybe overconfidence and overcompetence and overreliance on very fancy, clever things and forgetting some of the basics. We've learned that. We figured that out. There's going to be battalions on those borders for many, many decades to come. And um, and we still have all those capabilities we developed for all those larger, more complicated, fancier wars that involve rockets and missiles and you know long distances. And I want to let you. I don't. I know I kept you over. Uh, I want to ask you a couple more questions. I sincerely appreciate you taking this time. Um, but I want to ask you just a quick couple more questions uh, because I think they're important. Um, if you have a couple seconds, and uh, yeah. I just wanted to ask you about just one strategic and then get back to the, the, the tactical and then, um, uh, and then go from there. But, uh, the Israeli U S Saudi agreement, um, do you think that that plus the Israeli division on executive and judicial, um, issues, uh, plus U S maybe Afghanistan leadership, all these things came to a head at once, because as you said, Hamas has been training up for this for, for a long time. Uh, and then they chose, or were told, the 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 timing. Um, they, they chose the time and place. Yeah. 
training for it for a long time. Do you think that Saudi US Israeli agreement also played into this? Yeah, so there are, there are many things happening all at once. I mean, Hamas has many reasons to pull this off. It has been planning it for much longer than any one reason. Um, but then the, the question is exactly the way you put it. Why did they pull the trigger? They prepared it all. It was all ready. People had trained for it. They had the people in place. And then they sat on it for quite a while. Um, at least two years, they've been ready for something like this. So they pulled the trigger now probably as a because a lot of things came together. Um, uh, because Israel was seen as weakened, uh, its leadership was seen as, as, as uh, very destabilized. Because there was an opportunity here, they thought, to uh, get to make it more difficult to have that uh, Israeli-Saudi normalization, which would isolate Iran to a degree in the region. All of these things put together, and several others, uh, I think are the reason that they pulled the trigger now. But they would have pulled the trigger at some other point if they didn't come together in that way. In other words, that's not why it happened, but it is why it happened now. Got it. Got it. And there's this, um, what's being in more Western media, it's being called a global day of jihad tomorrow, Friday. We're recording this on, on Thursday. I think it translates as a, gen, a day of general mobilization when I read the the statement from, from Hamas, at least the translation that I read. Um, and I think they're calling it uh, the Friday of Alaska. Um, what do you... What do you think that will, will, what will that look like for the West? Will that be more regional? Um, does it have no effect at all? And it's just rhetoric that's going to, going to get lost in some of, of the static. Is that regional to the Middle East? Is that Middle East Europe? Or is that something that is going to be in fact, a global day of jihad, which is how it's being uh, translated in a lot of the Western press anyway? No, I think it's going to target Jews. Yeah. What could it possibly mean in London? Mm -hmm. um, all of these protesters in Australia, all these protests, when you're shouting gas the Jews in Australia, you're concerned about Israeli policy? Who are the closest Jews if you're in Sydney, Australia? They can't get to us. They don't want to get to us because they're incompetent idiots. And if they get to us, we're serious people who will not deal with them kindly. So they're going to get to the closest and easiest target. And that's the Jews. Uh, the Jews of Sydney know that that large crowd shouting gas the Jews lives among them. The Jews of London, the Jews of New York uh, know that. We've had this incredible phenomenon on Twitter. There are a lot of very liberal Jews in America, friends of mine, people I love, very critical of Israeli policy. We're now starting to wonder if maybe they should be more than not just critical of Israeli policy, but fundamentally israel needs to be something else a state for two peoples not a jewish state something more complex maybe something completely non-zionist and they were allies and they saw this pro-hamas left as allies that branch of the left that hopefully fraction of the left i don't know as as pro-hamas allies uh, as allies of theirs and they just discovered and they're coming out about it anti-zionist liberal jews coming out and saying, whoa, just literally the massacre of Jewish children is a controversial question. This is not allies. They're not liberals. They use liberal language to cover for uh, something else, something very, very, very else, some, the opposite. They're the opposite of me. So now they're stuck with their, you know, more conservative Jewish uh, compatriots 
uh, who they never liked. And I apologize to them for that, but uh, we'll take care of them and they'll take care of us. Um, but uh, but that that is them waking up to this, this ideology that is a threat. I do think there will be terror attacks tomorrow. I do think it will target Jews. Certainly there will be in Israel, but we can take care of it. We can take care of ourselves. Uh, those countries, you know, the NYPD, I don't have to tell them they need to take care of the Jews and stop terrorism. They know. Uh, I'm not so sure in London. I'm not so sure in Sydney, Australia. Um, so I, I hope I hope they do. And uh, I tweeted about it. I don't know what else I can do in Sydney, Australia. Um, but they owe their Jews. Australian Jews are loyal Australians. They love being Australians. It's not that expensive to move to Israel. And, you know, if, you, if you're a Jew and you live in some other country from Israel, you want to be that. You're part of it. You believe in it. It is your identity. American Jews are profoundly American. Even when they support Israel, very few ever move. It, they're Americans in every way. They can't even imagine being anything else. Protect them. And I want to finish up here uh, and ask you something about what Golda, it's been attributed to Golda Meir, um, and I'm not sure if it's the, her exact words or or not, but I would, uh, the amount of times that I've heard it uh, and morphed a little bit here and there, I would think that she at least said something similar to this. And uh, I think 1957, uh, it says at the National Press Club in Washington, she said, peace will come when the Arabs love their children more than they hate us. And then at a 1969 press conference in London, um, she said, when peace comes, we will perhaps in time be able to forgive the Arabs for killing our sons, but it will be harder for us to forgive them for having forced us to kill their sons. Powerful. Golda have a lot of uh, smart uh, sentences, smart lines. You know, if you're, um, if you're Palestinian, um, you're unimpressed by those words, right? They sound very self, self-validating. Um, but there's this moment now. You know, two things are happening that are happening parallel, and really those kinds of that that sentiment. One of them is all of these people on the on the on the progressive left, who are shocked. By their by their fellow travelers by the, by the, by this pro Hamas pro pro murder people who they had considered, you know, people who want freedom and liberation and, and are just progressive friends of theirs. They're shocked. There's this this end in the Democratic Socialists of America are having a, apparently. I'm basing this on reports. I I don't personally know the party. Are having a wave of resignations because so many Democratic Socialists of America. People went to these rallies and saw Hamas supporters shouting about the ha their happiness at the dead Jews in New York. They had this big, they, they yelled out 700 back when that was the death toll. Now, a Democratic Socialist of America doesn't generally think that they're for the massacre of children. And so they discovered that, in fact, around them are people who are. Uh, Black Lives Matter Chicago. One of the most significant, one of the largest Black Lives Matter, uh, Black Lives Matter is a very diverse and sort of scattered organization, but its Chicago chapter is one of the biggest organizations in the movement. They put out in support, uh, you know, a graphic of the of the paraglider. That's a paraglider that paraglided into a, a music festival and murdered 260 young people in a music festival. Is that what Black Lives Matter is about? 
you'd be surprised how many black activists have have written on Twitter, on Facebook, well, I don't know if anyone's on Facebook anywhere, but on Twitter uh, and on TikTok, that they're horrified and shocked. They don't know what it means. What is that? How could you, you know, there's so many ways to support Palestinians. There's so many reasons to support Palestinians. So many Israelis support Palestinians in so many ways. It has to be the mass murderer. That's your Palestinian hero. That's what Black Lives Matter is. A lot of people are waking up. And my message to those people who are waking up is that Hamas did this to them. Every single progressive, every single person who supports Palestinian freedom and who now finds themselves in this trauma being torn by having to decide whether it's to support Palestinian freedom, but that means also for some reason that they're now being told that that means also supporting mass murder. Hamas did this to them. Hamas is forcing them to decide between their decency and their values. Hamas did that to them. They're the victims. And they like hearing that they're the victims. So I'm telling them they're the victims. And but they are the victims. In the exact same way, Hamas's only strategy now is to hide behind civilians. As we go into Gaza, literally, literally, we are going to have to pull Hamas out from under the Palestinian civilian population. And Hamas is doing that to them. And so this is an organization whose entire existence is forcing people to choose between their decency, their basic decency, and their political affiliation, their affinity, their tribe, their people, their, 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 you know, their values. It's, it, its entire existence is premised on other people's decency and other people's difficulty in violating that decency and living on that edge so that they can survive and commit atrocities. We're going to end that, and we're going to free the democratic socialists of America from having to live in a in that dissonance of discovering that they're Hamas supporters, and then they'll be much more comfortable coming after us. So you're welcome, democratic socialists of America, for, for what's about to happen. And I'd say from the outside looking in, you can let me know if this is uh, an accurate assessment or not, that uh, uh, certain wings of the government in Israel is looked at as very hawkish, uh, Netanyahu in particular. But it would seem if you look at the capability of the Israeli military and the intelligence services that they have uh, exercised enormous restraint uh, over the last at least decade and a, and a half, um, meaning their capabilities versus how they have responded to different terrorist attacks coming out of the north and out of, of Gaza, West Bank, um, and Iran. That seems to me that that restraint may be a thing of the past, most certainly is a thing of the past. The greatest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. It's over. What, what, what was is over. Some people will figure that out quickly. Some people will figure that out slowly. The more slowly our enemies figure it out, the deeper the lesson is going to uh, is going to be. The, the clearer the lesson is going to be. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for taking so much time with me today. I've certainly learned a lot. I hope people watching and listening have have learned a lot. Um, my thoughts and prayers are with you, your family, um, your extended family, everyone in Israel who's massing on the border, getting ready to go into probably some of the toughest combat you probably can in an urban environment. Um, what can people who hear this do if they're, uh, if they, they feel helpless um, and want to do something to help? 
um, what would you say to them? Um, what we are is, uh, is, is a nation, our definition, our identity is that we take care of ourselves. If you want to support, support the families. The families, there are some charities that are helping the actual families who were actually devastated. They're getting support. They're getting love. They're, uh, we filled up a box and took it. There's, you know, they were taken to hotels to get them out of the, out of the villages that were destroyed. Um, but any support for the survivors is a beautiful, wonderful thing. Uh, Israel itself doesn't need your support in that, in any physical way. Um, but it, it, you know, know the difference between good and evil. Know that difference. Have your politics. Cling to your politics. Make your politics. You know, be left wing or right wing. Know the difference between good and evil. And and then that's enough. If we live in that world, everything else we can solve. Thank you again for taking this time. Please reach out uh, if you need anything. And um, yeah, uh, thoughts and prayers, best wishes. To all Thank you. you. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Haviv Reddit Gore, be sure and follow him on X, formerly known as Twitter, at H-A-V-I-V-R-E-T-T-I-G. G-U-R. You can also follow his work at the Times of Israel, and that is at T-I-M-E-S-O-F-I-S-R-A-E-L. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA. OfficialJackCar.com is the website. You can click on shop in the upper right-hand corner for the merch. And if you got something out of this conversation, be sure to leave a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting.